One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. Today's Backer Reward episode follows on nicely from our discussion of Armenia last week. But before we can discuss Georgia and the Black Sea, I should just let you in on some exciting news. As you know, I was in Istanbul back in May and made contacts with a tour company. I'm very excited to announce that A History of Byzantium Tour is being launched next week. The tour will head to Istanbul next April for five days, and I'll tell you all about it in our next episode. If you are one of those who backed the Kickstarter at the tour level, then check your emails as you have a chance to book your place before everyone else. Listener CS has three questions for us today, two of which concern Georgia, the lesser-talked-about part of the Transcaucasus. He asks, what were the Georgians up to in relation to the empire, century by century? This is slightly tricky because of our paucity of sources, and because, like their Armenian cousins, we aren't talking about a homogenous people. We're talking about a collection of peoples speaking languages that we identify with the Georgian family. Anyway, uh, well, give it our best shot. Uh, you may remember Justinian's day better than others, and uh, you may recall Georgia was divided into roughly three peoples, or at least three spheres of influence. Lazica in the west, bordering the Black Sea, Iberia to the east, occupying the centre of the Caucasus Mountains, usually with its capital at Tiflis, modern Tbilisi, and then to the north, bordering the steppe world, were the Abazgians. Georgia was heavily influenced by Armenian culture, and so during the 4th century, these areas had also converted to Christianity. This brought closer ties with the Romans, and eventually the wars which Justinian and Khusro fought over control of this area. Despite initially rejecting the Council of Chalcedon, the Georgian church eventually accepted it. Between this and the regular contact with Roman shipping on the Black Sea, Georgia always maintained low-level, friendly relations with Constantinople, even during the centuries of the Caliphate's dominance. 
The wars between Justinian and Khusrow led to a division of Iberia into Roman and Persian areas, while the kingdom of Lazica eventually collapsed to be replaced by the kingdom of Abasgia, as elements from the north took charge of most of the Black Sea coast. Heraclius's amazing victory over the Sassanids seemed to point to a Roman-dominated future for the whole Transcaucus area, but of course the Arabs soon emerged and Byzantine influence collapsed. The first century of Islam saw a tug-of-war between the two sides, when the Arabs fell into their major civil wars, the Romans were able to march into the mountains to forge alliances. But as soon as the caliphate was back to business, Arab armies would head for the hills, and the Georgians and Armenians accepted the yoke. We got a brief and confused glimpse of this situation uh, from Leo III's biography. Uh, Justinian II sent him to the Black Sea coast to try and forge alliances with the locals. But once there, Leo realized that the politics was more complicated than he could easily manage, and without money and troops to support his efforts, he had to escape before he became a target. By the siege of Constantinople in 717, any opposition to Arab rule had been crushed in the mountains, and the Georgians were forced to look to their traditional enemies, the Khazars, for a potential counterweight to Baghdad. Living as they did on the borders of the steppe world, many trans-Caucasian writers have a particular disgust for the nomads. Doubtless they were the victims of many violent raids over the centuries, and several Georgian leaders had refused to cooperate with Heraclius when he brought steppe riders south with him. However, the Khazars offered stiff resistance to Arab domination, and there was hope that this might allow the Georgian peoples to avoid being dominated by either side. The results were inconclusive. For many years, Arab garrisons settled nearby, bringing greater control than the Georgians had had to endure before. But once the Khazar threat mellowed, the local Arabs tended to be situated further south in Armenia. During the second half of the 8th century, the caliphs began to impose direct taxation on Armenia for the first time. Predictably, this provoked a rebellion, and even more predictably, the Arabs ruthlessly crushed it. This led to several Armenian clans migrating north into Georgia, and it brought a wave of Arab settlement to Armenia. The caliphate's response to this bloody uprising was to encourage Arabs to migrate to the Transcaucasus, hopefully to provide a loyal Muslim population. And you know all about this, as many of them settled at Melitene and Theodosiopolis and around Lake Van. But others moved north to Tiflis, creating an emirate there, uh, dispossessing some local Georgians. In response to this, some in Georgia began to look again at Byzantium for support. A branch of the Armenian royal family, the Bagratuni, established themselves in Iberia and adopted the Chalcedonian orthodoxy of the population. Through this, they cultivated good relations with the emperors in Constantinople, starting as far as we know with Leo V, 
Um, a few of their leaders got themselves on the imperial payroll, and relations continued to grow over the rest of the century. A real intervention from the Byzantines would not come for some time, though, but the Georgians were ahead of the curve. The slow collapse of the caliphate and the revival of Roman fortunes began to become clear by the end of the ninth century. And from there, the story is more familiar to you. The Romans crushed the Paulicians, drove the Arabs from Theodosiopolis and Melitene, and increasingly absorbed Armenia into their orbit. The nearer parts of Georgia were also drawn in. David of Tau's kingdom was part Armenian, part Georgian. Again, remember the complications of geography and ethnicity in the area. Uh, predictably, despite uh, <laughs> many years of cultivating friendly relations, once Roman boots were actually on the ground in Tau, local Georgian rulers turned on them. You know, Despite Basil II being the protector of the Orthodox, it was more important for the rulers of the Georgian people to maintain their independence in the face of domination by an outside power. I hope that will suffice as an update for now. Obviously, Basil II then fought um, a couple of battles with the uh, northern Georgian kingdom, uh, which we covered in the narrative. Uh, there is obviously a lot more one could say about uh, various non-Georgian groups who live in the mountains and occasionally uh, came to dominate or have a, a part in politics during this era, uh, obviously, one could go into detail about Georgian history as far as we know it, but it doesn't really affect our narrative, and I think it complicates things to attempt to unravel the biases and, and uh, prejudices of the sources. Um, that's obviously been my attitude to Armenian politics as well. Um, I think what we take away from Byzantine, the Byzantine point of view in Georgia is that the area was impossible to fully bring into Roman norms. Um, you know, Basil II sent generals in to guard the major towns and the mountain passes, but he didn't attempt to um, send out tax inspectors to start assessing land um, because he knew resistance to that would be strong, and uh, a lot of the communities didn't live in nice organized villages the way they did, you know, down on the plains near the Mediterranean. Listener CS also says, by this point in the story, there is essentially a ring of Orthodox countries around the Black Sea. What was the cultural environment like around this Orthodox Sea? He's alluding to the fact that the Rus had now converted to Christianity which certainly increased the amount of potentially friendly traffic on the Black Sea. But it's worth pointing out that the Rus did not actually control the land to the north of the Black Sea. At this point, that was firmly in the hands of the pagan Pechenegs. East of them, and curving down into the Georgian world, various other steppe tribes uh, also lived, including the remnants of the shattered Khazars. So the Black Sea was very far from being dominated by Orthodox peoples, um, especially if you consider that the conversion of the Rus was relatively recent and state-led. 
you know vladimir was baptized in in 988 and so we can't expect the average rus sailor to have grasped the doctrines of chalcedon fully by 1025 full christianization would take several generations and as we often discover the needs of realpolitik are more important than the shared beliefs of two nations you know when the rus want a better deal for their merchants at constantinople they attacked it and you know conversion to christianity or not when our narrative resumes they will do this again uh, in 1043 they will be crossing the orthodox sea aiming to kill their brethren as for the communion between the georgians and the romans we find a very similar pattern of behavior to that which we observed in the armenian world you know, hymns of praise when cooperation was needed, and uh, violence when domination was threatened. Many Georgian writers profess admiration for the Romans and for their intellectual achievements. Many visited the empire on pilgrimage, and Constantinople was generally seen as the home of their faith and the director of its destiny. But the Romans were also viewed as a threat. Uh, you know, despite accepting Chalcedon, the Georgian church had its own liturgical language and was protective of its independent status. Over the centuries, there were various clashes with the Romans um, and also with the Armenian Chalcedonians and the Armenian Apostolic Church. Um, you know, to give you an idea of the violence, uh, and I'm sure there is a lot of hyperbole involved in these, but Apparently, uh, an Iberian prince was blinded for attempting to introduce the Chalcedonian rite into the Armenian town of Kars in 937. And, of course, David of Tau supposedly said that he saw no difference between an apostolic church and a mosque, given that both were heretical to him. David of Tau is a great example of the complexity of Transcaucasian life. He was a Georgian prince, and in that last example, we see him espousing aggressive pro-Chalcedonian rhetoric. But he was descended from the Bagratuni family, the royal family of Armenia, who were the guardians of the Apostolic Church. Uh, his lands in Tau had both Georgian and Armenian subjects, and followers of both churches. David's involvement in the civil wars of Phokas and Skleros were facilitated by Georgian monks, monks who had gone to live in Greece on Mount Athos. And here we see the relations of Romans and Georgians in microcosm. The Georgians who established the Iveron Monastery did so in part to stay up to date on Byzantine theological literature. The monks there were copyists and translators, sending back to Georgia the latest ecclesiastical news from the home of orthodoxy. And they were initially welcomed to the holy mountain, but over time relations soured. The Georgians had need of Roman assistance to maintain their facilities, and some of those they brought in looked jealously on their wealth leading in 1029 to a violent attack on the Georgian monks. Their leader was accused of being part of an imperial coup, and local Roman monks attempted to seize the building. And sadly, this is not an isolated incident. 
Although many Georgian monasteries operated peacefully throughout Byzantium, their writers leave behind many complaints about Roman arrogance and distrust of any language other than Greek being used for religious matters. So there you go, a predictably mixed history of relations, despite um, uh, viewing one another as, as orthodox and not heretical. Final question is an easy one. Listener CS says, uh, when did the Exarchate of Ravenna stop existing? It seems like it was there one minute and then Venice is a buffer state the next. Um, I will have to direct you back to episode 75 for the answer to this. After years of Lombard pressure, Ravenna was captured in 751 by King Aistulf. Uh, the Byzantines were busy with the Bulgars at the time, and they certainly couldn't spare any troops from Anatolia. And so despite diplomatic pressure on the Lombards and the Franks, who then uh, became involved in the peninsula, uh, Ravenna was never returned. Uh, Venice, on the other hand, could be supported by sea, and so remained in the Roman orbit for much, much longer. That's it for today. Uh, if you are desperate to come to Istanbul next April, then you can always email me to get some details in advance. Um, otherwise, the big announcement will come next week. Uh, and I, you know, I hope to run future tours uh, if all goes well, but they probably won't come till 2020. Uh, that's it. I'm very excited to go back to the city and to show you all the Byzantine sites still there. Uh, next week, back to the regular podcast. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 